Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, Gil Heron. On the last episode of the podcast, I talked about or raised the question about who was the first professional black soccer player in the United States. And so in today's episode, I want to answer that question by talking about the career of Gil Heron, the man who I think has the best claim to being the earliest known professional black soccer player in the United States. Gilbert St. Elmo Heron was born in Kingston, Jamaica on April 9, 1922. Uh, Both his parents were black, but his great-great-grandfather had come from Scotland. While a schoolboy on the island, uh, Heron played soccer, of course, ran track, and supposedly in a quarter-mile race once beat uh, the legendary Herb McKinley, who as a sprinter would go on to win a gold medal in the four, as part of the 4x100 relay team in the 1952 Olympics. And as we'll see, speed would always be an important part of uh, Gil Heron's soccer game as well. In 1939, he arrived in the United States with his mother after his parents had split up. And at first, they settled in Cleveland. And while he was there, he played American football. He played what we today might call running back for the Glenville High School Tar Blooders. And he seemed to be pretty talented. And in fact, reports indicate that they were designing plays especially for him. But unfortunately, he broke his shoulder Uh, partway through the season, and that was uh, the end of his uh, nascent American football career. But I think it illustrates something, and again, we'll touch on this at various points, that he was a talented athlete playing soccer, uh, playing baseball. There's even some uh, record of him uh, having boxed as well. Eventually, the family moved to Detroit, and Detroit would really be Heron's hometown from this point uh, on. In 1943, he enlisted in the Canadian Air Force because, of course, he was still a British citizen at that point. He didn't see any action overseas during World War II, and it seems from the evidence that I could gather that he mostly spent the war playing sports. So again, he boxed, he ran track, and he played shortstop for the softball team uh, at the base that, where he was stationed. And, of course, he also played soccer, uh, again, revealing his overall athleticism. Uh, he was hospitalized in October 1943 with a serious knee injury that he suffered in a soccer game against a Norwegian Air Force team. By June 1944, he had been discharged from the Air Force and he returned to Detroit. A year later or so, uh, he had continued to play soccer, and he was playing for a team called Venetia in the Detroit District Soccer League. This was an amateur circuit, and he scored 44 goals in just 14 games, which, if you average that out, is over a hat trick per game. He was, by this point, 6 feet tall, about 170 pounds, with a light brown complexion and reddish hair and hazel green eyes. I want to pause here to talk a little bit about Chicago because it's in Chicago where Heron would play arguably his best soccer and where he would make his first appearance as a professional. Chicago is next. Soccer in Chicago had a history dating back to at least the late 19th century. Uh, First, it was played mostly by British immigrants and later by Eastern European 
uh, immigrants as well. Uh, league play began as early as the 1880s, so Chicago had always had a strong uh, soccer tradition. In 1909, the Peel Cup, named for an Irish-American, uh, was organized. It's a state competition that was deliberately modeled after the uh, England's FA Cup. In 1913, a high school soccer league uh, existed, and it also included one of the first known black players, a student named Marvell Webb, who uh, turned out for his school in 1916. In the 1920s and 30s was a, uh, the period of real growth in soccer uh, in Chicago. Uh, there were intense rivalries being formed, especially between Eastern European clubs, uh, organized by folks who had come from Czechoslovakia and Poland. And they competed not only on the field, but they also competed for the top players, uh, some of whom were signed directly from Europe. They were brought over to play soccer uh, from Poland or Czechoslovakia or other areas. Uh, they, these clubs had corporate backers who paid or financed for these what we might call transfers, but also helped to pay the wages of these players that were brought in uh, to, uh, to turn out for the clubs. Unlike the case of New York, which I talked about in, the, in a previous podcast, I could find no evidence of any black soccer clubs in Chicago despite the fact that the African-American population was steadily increasing over the course of uh, a few decades. Uh, in 1910, for instance, the population uh, was about 44,000. By 1920, the African-American uh, residents in the city numbered uh, nearly 110,000. And by 1930, the, the, the number had grown to around 234,000. So part of what's called the great migrations of African Americans from uh, primarily the American South into urban areas, especially places like Chicago, Detroit, and New York. We do see that, uh, as in the case of New York, soccer as a sport, as an organized sport, seemed to be less restrictive in terms of uh, racial segregation and discrimination than many other institutions and activities that were performed or that took place in the city. So I already talked about Webb, the high school student who played for his local league. In the 1920s and 30s, uh, a group called the Labor Sto Sport Union, which was associated with trade unions as well as the socialist and communist parties, they called for integrated sports, and they especially wanted to highlight opportunities for African Americans to participate in sports of all kinds. In 1934, or by 1934, they had a soccer league that had 13 teams in two divisions. But it's unclear whether or not there were any African Americans participating in this league. But uh, non nonetheless, this was a, a stated goal of the league was to try to improve opportunities for black athletes in the city. The Chicago Defender, of course, one of the largest and most famous uh, newspapers, African-American newspapers in the United States, didn't cover soccer a tremendous amount, but they did 
write articles and publish photographs when the Uruguayan uh, team visited, and they praised Andrade, the Afro-Argentine um, fullback who starred for the for the national team, and they also reported on uh, scores for historically black colleges, uh, soccer clubs like Hampton, uh, Howard, and Lincoln. So, uh, not a tremendous amount of coverage for soccer in the black press, but at least some awareness. Uh, of it. Also in the 1930s, a Mexican club, Nakasha, uh, formed, and although many of the Mexican immigrants would have preferred to play baseball, uh, the, the organized baseball associations in the city uh, prohibited or discriminated against Mexicans uh, and would not allow them to participate. And so they joined, formed a soccer club, and joined the National Soccer League where they were allowed to compete against white clubs. So we can see that soccer at least uh, had the potential for greater African-American participation than was possible in many other sports, including baseball. In 1946, the Hungarian-born uh, restaurant captain, uh, Fred Weitzman, who had uh, owned a team called the Chicago Maroons, a soccer team called the Maroons, uh, wanted to join the American Soccer League. And the folks at the ASL said, well, why don't you form a, a Western division? And instead, Weitzman decided that he was going to form his own professional league and called it the North American Soccer League, and not to be confused with the later iteration in the 1970s. This is also sometimes called the North American Professional Soccer Football League, which is something of a mouthful. The NASL included teams from Chicago, of course, but also Pittsburgh, Toronto, and a team from Detroit called the Wolverines. And starring on the Wolverines was a forward, the 24-year-old Gil Heron. In June, uh, on June 7, 1946, Heron made his first appearance for the Wolverines in the league, and this probably marks the first, uh, the debut of a, the, the first black prof known black professional soccer player in U.S. history, June 7, 1946. And Heron would go on to be uh, one of the league's best and, and most exciting players players. Uh, just some highlights of that first season in the NASL. He scored a hat-trick in the first league game played at Comiskey Park in Chicago, and he also scored in the game that clinched the league title for Detroit. Overall, he finished the season with between 14 and 16 goals. The sources differ on exactly how many he scored uh, in just eight games, and he emerged uh, winning the Golden Boot as the league's top scorer for that season. The next year, he was acquired by the Chicago Maroons for what was called at the time a substantial sum, and he was going to be paid $25 a game, which is the same sum that he earned for the Wolverines the previous year. The 1947 season was not nearly as successful for the league or for Heron, and it would be abandoned uh, by the fall of 1947. And Heron had scored only four goals in the 10 games that had been played to that point. So despite the fact that the 1947 season was perhaps not as successful as his debut uh, 
in the league the year before. Nonetheless, the black press had recognized the accomplishments of Heron and celebrated his appearance. I mean, this is the period where Jackie Robinson had signed for the Brooklyn Dodgers, was playing in the minor leagues, and would make his pro debut uh, just under a year after, or just about, uh, just less than a year after Heron made his a debut appearance as a professional soccer player. Robinson would play his first game for the Dodgers in April 1947. Ebony Magazine uh, published a, a spread on Heron in 1947 and called him the Babe Ruth of soccer. And a year later, the Chicago Defender would call him, quote, the only member of his race playing in pro circles. So clearly, even though they didn't spend a lot of time talking about soccer, uh, the black press recognized this as a significant achievement and recognized and championed Heron for his skill and ability on the pitch. After the failure of the NASL, Heron stayed in Chicago and he lived in the famous Bronzeville section of the city near the Regal Theater, which was uh, kind of the heart of a black culture and society during that particular period. In 1948, he married Bobby, St Bobby Scott, who he met at a bowling alley near the factory where they both worked. And although the marriage was short-lived, they did have a son who went on to great fame as the poet and musician Gil Scott Heron. In that same year, 1948, he signed for Sparta, which was one of the Eastern European clubs that had uh, one of the probably the most successful and, and powerful of the uh, Eastern European clubs. And he played outdoor soccer in what was called the National Soccer League, and he also played indoor soccer. And interestingly enough, many of these games were televised on local television, including the indoor soccer league games. And so they mark some of the first televised soccer games in U.S. history. With Sparta, he continued his prolific goal scoring. He uh, netted 38 in just 16 games, including four in a 7-0 route of Hansis. And in that particular match, he scored two goals in the first eight minutes. Heron became a U.S. citizen in 1949, and also in that summer, he played on a city all-star team and scored against what was essentially the U.S. men's national team uh, in their uh, in matches that were preparing for qualifying for the World Cup, the 1950 World Cup. And he, scoring and, and playing in that match, put on a good performance against many of the same men who would later uh, be in the U.S. squad that would defeat England famously in that World Cup 1950. Despite scoring 12 goals that season, he soon uh, hung up his boots and returned to Detroit. Uh, it seems that the team, Sparta, had signed a foreign striker and perhaps had no need or didn't wish to continue to pay uh, top wages for uh, more than one uh, forward. He spent the last few years of his career in Scotland. Uh, in 1951, he became well-known as the first black player to turn out for uh, Celtic. Uh, but while there, he had few opportunities with the first team and spent most of the year in the reserves. 
Uh, later, he moved on to Third Lanark, another Scottish club, but again spent most of his time there playing for the reserves and eventually ended up at lower league uh, Kidderminster Harriers uh, before returning to the United States. Also in 1952, in February, uh, he uh, earned two caps for Jamaica and scored a brace against the Caribbean All-Star team, marking his only uh, appearances for the national team. After returning to the United States with his Scottish wife, he lived in Detroit and worked as a photographer and started a second family. He died in 2008 and is probably was probably remembered more in the United Kingdom than he is over here, uh, in part because of his uh, brief period with Celtic. And, of course, he has been overshadowed by his more famous son, despite the fact that they were largely estranged from each other and would only meet uh, in 1975. Meet again, I suppose I should say, in 1975. I don't think, though, that Heron should be remembered for his failures, either as a pro in the United Kingdom or as a father. But instead, his legacy should be as a prolific goal scorer, one of the most talented footballers of his era, and as the first professional black soccer player in U.S. history. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For episode notes, please visit the website at www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US.